Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I remember leaving Ponceta Hedges, lovely and large, behind me at the airstrip in Panama. Dew filtered the dawn heat that would evaporate just as the brilliance of morning light would turn gray at my destination. Only a few hours after departing from the continent's midsection, the plane descended, grazing for thousands of miles over the majestic Andes, the backbone of Chile and its capital city, Santiago. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Kathy Osberger about her heartfelt debut, I Surrender, a memoir of Chile's dictatorship, 1975. Kathy was 22 and had recently graduated from the University of Notre Dame when she flew to Chile to teach young children in the capital city of Santiago. She was housed with other Catholic women, some from a religious order of nuns, all involved in education. She learned that there would occasionally be visitors to the home, but didn't realize immediately that the visitors might have been caught, might have caught the attention of Pinochet's secret police. She learned about the punishment for harboring fugitives of this sort, but all these women wanted to protect innocent people from unjust torture and probable death. Then one day, Kathy was picked up, forced into a car, blindfolded. She prays, acknowledging to herself that she might not live to see another day. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Khalid. And thanks to your audience for um, being interested in my story. So this the events that are described in your book took place in 1975. Why did you wait so long to tell your story? I was always telling my story verbally, but everyone would say, you got to write this story. And finally, when COVID came and I was isolated at my house, I said it was now or never. And I put the pen on the page. Mm. Catholicism and the church were a central part of your life and probably inspired much of your decision to teach children in a poverty-inflicted area of San Diego. I don't know anything about nuns except for once singing a scene in the Dialogue of the Carmelites. So can you say more about how it felt to be surrounded by nuns and uh, religious people without being a nun? Um, I was lucky enough to be invited into this group of sisters, three sisters, but also two lay women, one Peruvian and one Chilean, were living in the same convent. And I was there as a volunteer. Um, it was good to have a, a good place to stay and also where I had people who could orient me to Chile. These sisters were very modest. Um, they were they dressed in uh, normal clothing. They weren't in habits. They were um, excellent teachers and very committed um, to they taught and also committed to the hardships that they were seeing around them. Mm-hmm. Um. You understood that Chile was a dictatorship at the time, controlled by General Augusto Pinochet after a coup. How did your parents let you go there? And why Chile? 
I went to Chile because I was at the University of Notre Dame and um, they were starting a program that was associated with priests from the University of Notre Dame, the Holy Cross priests, who also were working in Santiago. And um, so that was the, the, the link from me going down to Santiago. There was a group of us, but I was the only woman. So therefore I was living with the sisters where the male members of our group were living um, close with the priest. Um, so, so my parents, um, they, I had already been in, uh, studied a semester in Spain. I also went to an, an immersion experience in Panama. And oddly, um, you know, Spain at that time, Franco, and when I went to Panama, it was under Torrijos. So I didn't give it a second thought. I didn't know deeply. I knew there were troubles in Santiago and in Chile, but I didn't know the depth and the profundity of it when I arrived. Hmm. I understand that. You write that when you first arrived, Chile's police, the carabineros, were dressed like Nazis and carried shiny machine guns while they were surveying the airport crowd. Did you want to turn around and leave right then? I was scared. I was intimidated. The reality of what I, the little I knew about Chile was right there in my face. No, I didn't want to run. I wanted to understand what was going on in Latin America, not just in Chile, but in other countries. And I, I wanted to understand um, what was happening. Yeah. Your your first sign of danger was when Bernadette, one of one of your housemates, explained to you that a house guest who just left the morning you arrived, you arrived, had been wanted by the DINA. Can you briefly summarize the story of the man they called Juan? Yes. Um, the the DINA, the DINA, was the secret police of Chile. And they had uh, captured this man who uh, went by, the, well, the pseudonym was Nan, but his, Juan, but his name was uh, Zamora, Sergio Zamora. And um, he had been captured by the secret police and tortured viciously for many hours. And then they wanted him to go out and they took him in their car in the middle of the day and they were waiting for um, members that associated with the Comité Pro Paz, which was a church authority group trying to help people who are being targeted by the secret police. And they wanted him to point out someone who worked in that building and they would all be coming out for their lunch. And so they were waiting for him to point out a, a, a person that they were looking for too. And instead of him pointing them out, he ran towards the door and the members of the staff realized what was happening because he was screaming and they pulled him inside to safety and took him away from the secret police who had already um, tortured him with more than 100 scars on his body, including um, burn marks and whip marks. Wow. Uh, you talk about reading, having read the story of this same Juan in a Time magazine article. So the world knew what was happening in Chile, how people were being picked up off the streets and tortured, women were being raped, bodies being dumped. Good thing the world no longer allows dictators to murder citizens, right? Uh, <laughs> don't we good wish, thing, good thing don't we we wish that part of, of that was our lives trick. and stories that, that, would that was be a gone. trick trick question. So why was Pinochet's government so fixated on eradicating everyone with socialist leanings? Well, um, you'll remember that the 1970s were a time of a lot of turmoil throughout um, our nation, as well as throughout Latin America. There were deep aspirations of the masses of the poor 
and the, um, those who are downtrodden to have a better life. And they were looking for a government that would give them more promise. They would maybe the promise of some health care, the promise of better jobs, because many jobs um, were not available to people because the wealth of the country, it's copper, it's silver, it's nitrate. All of those things were being uh, controlled by multinationals that were taking the profits out of the country instead of letting the country control their natural resources, which could have provided uh, resources to improve the population. Yeah, I can't have that. <laughs> that will just ruin a country if people are getting paid. Um, why? Can you say more about the mass of the forgotten ones and the march of women and families of detained and disappeared? Yeah, so within a few days of my arrival, there was the first mass, uh, massive gathering of people since the time of the coup, which was September um, 1973. So this is this is two years later in 1975. And for the first time, 4,000 people gathered in the Basilica of Lourdes Church to um, be in solidarity with the families of the disappeared who had, who um, whose loved ones had either been picked up um, and known to be picked up by the security forces or the military, tortured, and somehow no one knew where they were at this at this point. And of course, they were presumed dead. But people were demanding accountability from the military government, Pinochet's government, to tell them, "Donde están? Where are they? Tell us where our children, our loved ones are." And so they then, you know, had many different types of protests and ways in which they were trying to bring attention to the fact that their loved ones' whereabouts have not been um, disclosed. And this, of course, was a huge heartache to every family member. Yeah. Um, in October of 1975, the junta denied re-entry into Chile to a Catholic bishop and other cardinals and bishops joined in an international outcry. What was Pinochet trying to accomplish by refusing entry to Catholic priests, bishops? Actually, that was not a Catholic priest. It was a Lutheran bishop, Helmut Frenz, ah. started the first committee in solidarity, which called it, what's known as the Comité Pro Paz. Later, it became known as the Vicariate of Solidarity, the, La Vicaria de la Solidaridad. Um, Helmut Frenz was... Um, just a, pr a prominent leader immediately after the coup, gathering all of the churches. Um, so it was himself and a, a, one of the rabbis who um, initiated a response to the persecution that was going on. They began to document the abuses. Within days, the Catholic Church and many Protestant churches of different de denominations joined in what was called the Comité Pro Paz, the Committee for Peace, to um, help those Help the poor and the persecuted. And what's happening now with that? Is that still going on? Uh, no, that um, that committee lasted uh, for two years. Okay. And then Pinochet and the clash that we're going to be discussing um, forced it to close. But the cardinal, um, the greatest power in terms of the population of people's affiliation by faith, 90% of Chileans at that time considered themselves Catholic. So the Catholic archbishop, had a considerable amount of power compared to the power that Pinochet had. He had the bullets and the and the army, but um, Cardinal Silva had the moral the moral force behind mm -hmm. him of the population. Right. And um, when the the Comité Pro Paz was forced to close, 
um, the archdiocese reopened it within a few weeks under its own auspices. And then the clash starts between the government, Pinochet um, dictatorship, and the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, the story that you tell in the book, we're not, I don't want you to tell it now. It's a, it's a wonderful, fascinating, and also intensely disturbing story about what happened to you. But I want to ask now in retrospect, all these years later, if you had it to do over again, what would you, what would you do differently? Oh, I would do nothing differently. Um, I was young. I was there, I was listening, I was learning, and I was being offered experiences so I could really see what was happening to the poor and the persecuted. And um, and I was living in this house with these very faithful women. One of them was a Chilean, Isabel Donoso and Rosita Rojo from Peru. And they and many, many other people in their age group were, um, were valiant and were real leaders of human rights. And I was learning from all these faith-filled people um, from their bravery, standing up to the secret police and to the Pinochet government. Of course, mm. that involved me directly. Yeah. I was fascinated by the chapter about how University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman advised Pinochet to impose a rapid fire transformation of the economy through tax cuts, free trade, privatized services, cuts to social spending, and deregulation. And I couldn't help but notice the similarity between that and a certain political party in this country. Um, what say you? Well, um, it's very well documented that the, um, the policies that were put in place that were taught at the University of Chicago uh, led to devastation after the coup in Chile. Of course, first of all, after the coup, factories were closed, unions were broken. Um, the country went into a free fall. The United States, which had been giving ample, ample support to the previous two um, Chilean governments, just stripped out everything for, for food, for um, hospitals, for different ways that they were supporting the Chilean government. So now on every front, the people were in destitution. And um, the legacy of the neoliberal model is still strong, um, is still something that is being questioned here in this country as well by progressives. We need to figure out some balance between the market system and um, actually helping people in need and allowing them to be more fully engaged in the benefits of um, our wealth creation. Mm -hmm. I love this quote from the book, when you're looking back at the experience, quote, it would take many years before I understood that the ability to live unaware of the deep fiber of history, of place and plunder, marks one as privileged, even if this privilege is not sought. Can you say more? Yes, that's a deep feeling that I have. Um, of course, you know, when you're an American going to another country, I think Many of people in your audience may have had this experience where you know, um, you, you, you see how privileged you are, perhaps economically, to even travel, to have a chance to see another country, to have food on your table, to have access to medical care. And of course, um, you know, I, I went to school 
at Notre Dame. I was lucky enough to be there on a basically a scholarship because my parents um, were employed at the school. It was one of the benefits. And at that time, things didn't cost as much either. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, of course, I benefited in all those ways. But for that reason, all the more I wanted to be understand what was happening in the vast majority of our world. And my experience in Chile and later in Peru were um, large bridges helped me with that understanding. Mm. Yes. Kathy, it, so is there another book up your sleeve? There's probably four or five, um, but right now I'm beginning to um, launch um, my, my book tour, and I'll be going to the University of Oklahoma, University of Arizona. I'll be speaking at Notre Dame on September 11th, I'm going to various schools on the East Coast and the West Coast. So I'm very excited about that and engaging um, with uh, students and faculty around the story that for many they've heard about. But now is the time that we have a chance on the 50th anniversary of September 11th of this year to um, grow closer to the impact of that story and for what it means for a democracy to be overthrown. Absolutely. And uh, it was lovely talking to you. I found the story riveting. I sat down and did not stand up until I finished it. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so thank you. And I wish you the best with getting the word out about your experience. Thank you for your audience for listening to this, um, this story. And please remember the Chilean people on September 11th 19 of this year, um, they're recognizing a very important date and hoping for a much better future. Thank you. Again, thanks for joining me. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Kathy Osberger about her debut memoir, I Surrender, a memoir of Chile's dictatorship, 1975. Hope you all have a great book to cozy up with tonight and every night. Happy reading, everyone.